Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Guys, I am so, so excited because Trip Fuller and I have just launched the landing page for our new online pop-up learning community, also known as an online reading group. It is called Live Before You Die, Existentialism in Psychology and Theology. You can go to Exploring Existentialism right now and sign up. It is a pay-what-you-want four-session reading and response and Q&A online, uh, I don't know, phenomenon, seminar kind of. Uh, Trip does these a lot. This is the first one that I have been able to do with him. I am presenting the work of the psychologist Irvin Yalom, and Trip is producing or is uh, presenting the work of theologian Paul Tillich, two uh, giants of American thought who both dealt really seriously with uh, existential questions. So there will be more to come, uh, more info and announcements about this. But this episode today with Trip is like kind of a kickoff event, having a little bit of fun with it, talking about music, as well as these deep existential questions or, or using music as a way into some of those 
Um, but it's going to be so awesome. It is whatever you can afford to pay. So head over to exploringexistentialism.com and sign up. All right. Hello, everyone. This is Trip, and uh, we, we're having we're going to have some fun today because Dan Koch and I are going to get existential. That's right. We are going to face our finitude together. We are going to reflect on that threat of non-being, the creeping sense of meaninglessness. Quite a way to to choose to have fun, Trip. Yeah, yeah. But that's kind nothing. of a, that's a window into who we are. I would say. Yes. So we're going to have some fun sharing music around these big themes in existentialism uh, and, and the songs we each picked for it are not just, oh, this is a good example of the theme, but they're about our own wrestling with it. Uh, so I think it'll provoke both a little exploration of these different existentialist themes, uh, generate quality jams and storytelling, and hopefully lure you all to come hang out with Dan and I on the Internet because we're going to be doing an open online class uh, this fall. Where guess what? We're going to talk about existentialism and uh, we're going to get to hang out. I'm, I'm going to be bringing some theological and philosophical style existentialism with Paul Tillich. And uh, Dan, why don't you why don't you tell him how, how this tag team is going to work? Yeah. So I'm going to be talking about Irvin Yalom, who is kind of the founder of modern day existential psychotherapy but also weaving in some other existential psychologists and even some kind of interesting theistic rebuttals to some of uh, what Yalom wrote in his kind of landmark book, Existential Psychotherapy, I believe 1980 is when that came out. Mm -hmm. And we're, you know, we're going to be doing what we're, what you do, you do these things, you call them reading groups, and we are going to hand out readings to people digitally beforehand and kind of discuss where existentialism intersects with psychology and theology, as well as what we do as these kind of progressive theists with some of those yeah. questions. Really, it's kind of like the, the beating heart of, of my favorite uh, topic. So I'm excited to, to dive in deep with you over six sessions during that class. But I also think that this is kind of a cool way in to, to sort of talk about this stuff a little bit more lightly and a little bit more with a little bit more like kind of pop culture reference because these themes, the, these existential themes, uh, which we'll get into in a minute here, they come through in art uh, very profoundly because they are profoundly human experiences. They are human anxieties, uh, ultimate concerns, really, which, which is where Tillich is, um, you know, theologian Paul Tillich is a great lens as well. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the classes you know, it's a particular figure we're looking at, or uh, maybe it's like, oh, it's Advent or Lent. And we're going to kind of explore that. Yeah. One of the fun bits of existentialism and doing it from different disciplines is uh, we're both going to be learning with the other person. Uh, you obviously are in the middle of your graduate work in psychology, and this research is really connected with you. You're practicing it when, with patients and this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and Paul Tillich became my homeboy in eighth grade, uh, and that it has been since then. That right there, by the way, is the most clear enunciation of the difference between growing up evangelical and growing up mainline. <laughs> if Paul Tillich's name had ever gone across 
in anyone's mouth on any piece of paper I read growing up evangelical, it was in a way that he was being demonized as selling out the true gospel. And yet for you, you were able to befriend his very existentially aware, modern, contemporary situated, yet faithful approach, theistic approach, Christian approach, that right there, that says it all, the difference in, and, and the, what we've had to do to work through this stuff and which questions we've had to work through. I mean, that's a nice little microcosm of those different trajectories, which even though we've landed in very quite similar places. Mm-hmm. Well, and we share in common that both of us in college took philosophy classes and fell in love with the existentialists and Kierkegaard and such. Exactly. So, that's why I think it'd be fun talking about uh, these songs. So let's talk a little bit about existentialism here because I have covered it a bit on You Have Permission. This is, by the way, going out on, on both of our feeds. So you don't need to listen in both places, but you might check out the Homebrew Christianity or the You Have Permission feed if you're, uh, if you for other episodes if you like what you hear today. Mm-hmm. So existentialism is basically this this philosophical school of thought initially Soren Kierkegaard is thought of as sort of the grandfather of existentialism. He lived in the 1800s in Copenhagen, and he's coming out of a he, he's in a thoroughly Christian world and environment, but it has a kind of a state Christianity, right? It's like you become a Christian as you become a citizen of these northern European countries. And he is really fighting against the inauthenticity of that from a faith perspective, This looks nothing like the faith of Abraham, for instance, being willing to sacrifice Isaac. This is essentially just like good bourgeois citizenship. Mm -hmm. Then eventually after World War II and the um, just the incredible destruction on the European continent of those two world wars, you get kind of modern existentialism coming out of France and other places with Jean-Paul Sartre and others and Camus, the novelist Mm -hmm. and philosopher. And that's like the full fruition of existential, which is like, we are alone. These meaning systems have fully collapsed. We are completely on our own here. And then I think that's when the really interesting conversation can begin, because then you've got people like Paul Tillich and others coming from a Christian perspective going, well, you guys are on to something with that, but it might not be quite as bleak as you say, or maybe we have to go through that bleakness. That's like a modern dark night of the soul, if you will, to, to come out on the other end. And so how did I do on a, you're, you're the philosopher, not me. How did I do on a setting up? Of oh, no, no. I think that, I think that's great. Right. And so that Kierkegaard's worried that if, oh, if everyone is baptized, made a Christian and a citizen at the same time, then what do you, what do you do with the fact that Jesus called you um, <laughs> to follow him. What do you do that? You have to die uh, to self. All these kinds of images yeah. are sitting there. Like, like Kierkegaard even said, blessed are those who are offended by me. Um, you know, these kinds of uh, questions kind of, it goes, well, how is this even possible in our context? And it led him to recognize that the individual person has a deep responsibility about determining their own development through acts of, of will. Uh, yeah. And, and yes, you could be overdetermined. You could just do what the crowd says all the time, be it a Christendom, be it in capitalism, be it in whatever you, the isms are that sees us in collectives. But existentialism uh, kind of insists that, yeah, 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 death is guaranteed, but life isn't. And mm-hmm. in order to live before you die, it means owning right, uh, the, the, this kind of existential situation that you're the only one uh, that can act. Uh, for yourself and in doing so and being intentional about it and making decisions, you now harness 
right? Your own existence. So your your existence, your decisions, you know, the, the phrase existence precedes essence is the fun philosophical phrase, but underneath it is say no existence. Like you, like you, your own existing determines who you're going to be, your essence. You don't just inherit it because you were baptized it or you were born here or you're a part of this family or this tribe. Like you become who you are in your becoming and don't let the them, the they, the crowd define you. And you can see how that gets expressed in a context of like reductive materialist nothingness all the way to like, well, what would it even mean to be a true disciple? Or um, you can, it gets expressed in other religious traditions, but you know, yeah, I'd, it, Dan, you ask one little question. It's easy to get sidetracked and we never play music. So no, yeah. I mean, I think it was good. That That's a good bridge into, into sort of therapy, but I will say you can also imagine how 17 to 18 year old punk rock Dan really liked that idea of not going along with the them, with the crowd. Oh yeah. Uh, the individualism of the sort of subculture in which I became a young adult drew me in part, I think, to Kierkegaard, as well as my evangelical at that point still, still evangelical faith. And one of the things that I value about evangelicalism is that emphasis on personal responsibility, which I do think can be more lacking in some of the mainline and like Catholic and other traditions, if if only culturally, if not necessarily in these specific teachings. Mm -hmm. But let's turn it to, to therapy a little bit. So enter Irvin Yalom. And uh, by the way, he's he's not just sort of important as an existential psychotherapist. He is possibly the most, I don't know what the word would be. He's probably the most widely read and influential writer and thinker for clinicians in the last 50 years. That's that's my sense from having just finished doctoral coursework and having talked with many other therapist friends across traditions, approaches, modalities, or whatever. Everybody kind of claims Yalom. So he's really important for how we think about therapy today and how people do therapy today. So let's connect this to existentialism. So Yalom basically gives four existential concerns that every human being in the modern world ultimately has to face if they are willing to or if they are forced to face them through something happening in their life. And uh, those are death, freedom, isolation, and meaninglessness. We're going to talk a little bit about each of these as we talk about the songs. So maybe I'll set each up as we go. Maybe this is a good point to say, as we were talking about setting up the class and you're talking about Tillich, then Tillich's response to all of these is courage. So that's kind of a fifth element that we're going to be discussing. And do you want to just kind of save that also for when we get into the oh, songs? Oh, yeah, yeah. We got to okay. play some music, Dan. We got to play some music. All right. So what we did was we each selected a song for each of these categories. So we each have five songs. And I've got a couple more that we could maybe kind of bring in and talk about more of like a 30,000 foot view sort of thing towards the end. But let's talk about death. So for Yalom and, and for a lot of other existential thinkers, right, death is this absolute truth. We will all die. Everything that lives on this earth dies. Finitude is a fundamental fact of this worldly existence. And a lot of people try and avoid death. We try not to think about it. Uh, that's a, a very common and, and pretty accurate critique of, for instance, American culture, most American cultures, uh, a kind of a denial of death. Uh, the denial of death is a, a famous existential text as well. And so we were looking for songs that sort of grapple with this thing that, yeah, but, but death is, it is inevitable and it's something that we can't ultimately ignore forever. So, uh, should we start with, with my track or yours? 
Well, let's do yours. And I, I want to tell the story a bit about mine before you click play, though. Great. So we'll start with my track. I, uh, as a 40-year-old white hipster coming out of evangelicalism, I did the thing that I must do, which is choose a Sufjan Stevens song. So uh, this is from Casimir Pulaski Day. It's a song, as I understand it, based on a real-life experience of Sufjan Stevens. As a teenager, he lost a friend to bone cancer. Earlier in the song, my favorite line, which we're not going to hear because I'm going to play kind of the end of the song, where he, the narrator turns and is addressing God rather than addressing the friend. But earlier on, he says, Tuesday night at the Bible study, we lift our hands and pray over your body, but nothing ever happens. So they're praying for healing, but his friend is not healed, uh, and the friend eventually dies of cancer. And here is sort of the end of the song as as the speaker, at least semi-autobiographically, is addressing God. In the morning when you finally go, and the nurse runs in with her head hung low, and the cardinal lights the window. In the morning in the winter shade, on the first of March, on the holiday. So let me tell you kind of what I'm hearing here, and I want to know what, what you're getting as well. So the way that I would frame this song lyrically from what we've been talking about is that the speaker here has a Christian faith on which to draw to kind of make sense in, in some way of the suffering. He's like bringing in substitutionary atonement, like the glory when he took our place but also he takes and he takes and he takes. It's really, it's probably more a song about doubt fundamentally. It's about the experience of doubting his faith in light of this great loss, right? Mm-hmm. And so early on when they're trying to pray and basically keep death from coming, they fail at that and death comes anyway. Now at the point the song is written, the, the speaker is still kind of couching all of this in theological language of Ultimately, you know, he's still seeing God. He's still experiencing God. He has this theistic framework, but there's this incursion of death. And this is like as cart horse as we could possibly get. But to some extent, that is my current experience with existential concerns is I have religious experience. I have spiritual experience. I have religious practice. But the realities of death, freedom, isolation and meaning or meaninglessness are also a, a part of my human experience. And there is a there is a built-in tension there. And one question is, like an ultimate question that we'll probably get to towards the end of the class and everything, is like, do we go Yalom's way and we say, cut off the religious part and just face it straight on? Or do we say the tension between the two, that is, that's the human experience for a theist or for someone who is spiritual or has religious or spiritual experiences and I mean, that's an open question to me. It's, it's maybe the most interesting question to me. 
So you don't have to join the class because we just there. There we go. That was the kind of end <laughs> of the whole thing. And thinking of this album and how many of our it's the peers, Illinois album, by the yeah, way, yeah, that uh, and we're still waiting for the other states. Exactly. Um, I, w- I think we'll be waiting until uh, death and isolation take us, Trip. Well, we're going to either get that <laughs> or the end of Game of Thrones first. We don't know. <laughs> This song, hearing it at a time where you had kind of a more naive confidence of faith and haven't had peers die, does a song ring different as you've gotten older and it's one of the songs you hear as more people that you couldn't understand yourself without die? That's a great question. This came out in 05, so 18 years ago. I was 22 or so when it came out. Mm-hmm. You know, I still have not lost people that are really close to me yet. I actually still haven't. I've lost all my grandparents, but I was not particularly close with any of them. I've not lost a parent yet. I've not lost a sibling or a cousin or anything mm-hmm. like that, or even a, a close friend. So I have been sort of perhaps like on the small tail of the bell curve by 40 years of age, still kind of spared from that. Yeah. So I don't, I don't have an answer to that. And, and that would be like, I wonder if I'll return to this song when that inevitably does happen to me. What about for you? I think I'm a little bit more familiar with death, but I mean, part of it was being full-time clergy for 15 years. Totally. Then the number of people you're close to, but like I, I've had youth that got cancer and died. And yeah. so that's immediately, which this song was before she was born more or less, you know, or I guess you might've been a four-year-old when this came out. And she got cancer at the beginning of college and, and she passed. And that notion of taking away how it, the language of faith around taking and death, right? Like it, there's this sense until you know, like you don't, you won't know your own death. Um, this is one of the things Heidegger, one of the existentialists points out, like you understand death and seeing other people die. And as you do, then you come, it gets start to have more weight and you then understand your own finitude. But my best friend, Chad, who started the podcast with me, 15 years ago was first person to come meet Elgin in the hospital at two in the morning when he was born, who now can drive. He had adult onset bipolar disorder and paranoid schizophrenia Mm. and went in and out of all sorts of treatment and died. And that was the first time it was, you know, my generation and someone where I don't know my story without them. And, so the number of songs just for this that went up was huge. The first one that popped up was like Art of Dying by George Harrison because All Things Must Pass was one of Chad's favorite albums. Hmm. Like I remember in that moment when it went down, Hear You Me, the Jimmy Eat World song, uh, was one I just played on repeat in the car and scream and these yeah. kind of things. You know, so like music has this way of giving you words again when you don't have it. And I think faith does that well, like any kind of symbolic stories or enactments and rituals uh, and those kind of things can do it. And but this song, I think, really shows how just even faith or confidence, right, that God, God has received death into God's self through the cross and conquered it uh, through the resurrection. Uh, That doesn't protect you from the, the threat of coming to know that you will die. 
and the people that shape and make you up will die. That to me is such a profound question. And I kind of, you know, miss the moments where that wasn't, you know, just a part of the way I relate to people like uh, our mutual friend, Tony Jones is in the middle of uh, nowhere off, off in the bywaters currently. And uh, one of the people canceled on the trip. So there are three other friends of mine with him currently. And I texted him and was like, you better not screw this one up because I know y'all <laughs> in the middle of nowhere, but like, yeah, I was like, I got, I got half my casket team uh, oh my off the, you know, and, and I would never have thought about that except I did Chad's funeral, you know? Yeah. Anyway, sorry. That's no, that's great. You should have seen me yesterday making this list. I like pace around the back deck crying, listening to things on my headphones and then kids randomly interrupted me and I'm like, oh, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, that's kind of why these themes are great for therapy actually mm -hmm. is that, that's a good space like you spending time with the playlist, you know, and being interrupted is, is funny because it doesn't really fit with that kind of like having that space to really like sit with it, follow those thoughts, feel those feelings. But the therapy room is a great place for that. It's actually a great place to deal with these things. So I, I kind of like I didn't anticipate when I was an 18 year old philosophy major freshman finding that usage of the existentialism that I was drawn to, you know, I didn't understand it then, but it's been cool with this training to be able to kind of apply that stuff. And, and I think that kind of gets to it. So let's go to your first track or your, your death song, Bill Maloney, the vigilantes of love. And this song is one he wrote uh, about his teenager. And since we won't hear the whole thing, you know, the first one's like that, Oh, life, the opening lines, I don't know if the kid's on drugs or life. Why should that come as a shock? Life hasn't fallen out just quite in those neat suburban boxes. And by the end of the song, like it, it tells a story about the son having questions, but not even the language to put it together, about falling in love and uh, having young love sex and waking up and listening to his favorite alt-country albums, uh, and how these experiences of deep questions and these moments of deep passion or also get tangled up in his lyrics with the language for the Holy Ghost. And it turns into a parent's prayer. Hmm. Now, I first heard the song when I was a youth minister and loved it. And I used and parents loved it. And recently, the whole existential crisis of a teenager getting their permit and starting to have more of the questions that will be in the bit that you play. I like I now regularly think he's leaving home and three to four years and will have spent 95% of the time he spends with me. And he, I hope lives past me and thinking about him having life without me there to help. Yeah. Even though I, I hope I'm not needed, you know, this kind of thing, but right. I have not felt my death. So immediately as realizing so much of my identity is being a dad you can start to see that period coming to an end, even though I, my youngest is only six, but realizing like right now, when he has big questions about love, life, sex, faith, death, he lives with me and we get to talk, but there'll be times where he has them and I'm not there. And there'll be times my dad's not there. Anyway, you play a song now. Cause I'm just going to start crying. This is <laughs> so that you, I told to you, I've, you I've from... even preparing for this. I yeah. just, I just paced around outside smoking cigars and crying on a deck. Anyway. Yeah. Okay, so here's Kids on Drugs by Bill Maloney. Urban 
And then it goes on and does the kind of, you know, first young love experience. And at the end, uh, he says, and it really shouldn't be so hard to get yourself free. But all these lines in the sand and the love with strings, God, fear is such a funny thing. I don't know if the kids on drugs are life. Maybe it's a little of both. I know love has a way of holding its day, just like the girl with the Holy Ghost. One thing I love about his music is it it regularly uses sacred imagery for personal imagery and all the personal intimacy imagery for the divine. Like as your kids get more autonomous, right? Like you you can see them sitting there having these struggles and you're like, you're losing heart and you're feeling like a failure. You've barely got started. Like if you just knew the amount of joy you carry, right? Mm. And uh, and all that's going through your head. And then you go, well, what happens when I'm not even here to say those things? And it's death. Like one of the, even I mentioned earlier about Heidegger is like, you don't really, you don't get to experience your own death. I mean, short of the eschatological banquet, but you get to know it as other people die. And that becomes increasingly aware uh, as the people you can't understand yourself without uh, pass, but also as you recognize that you'll be doing that to them. And I think that's where that denial of death or whatever drive uh, shows up. It's part of the human experience. It's part of what structures human existence. It's part of what's uh, even the our language and meaning, all these kinds of things are tied up in it. And I think the exist, one of the gifts of the existentialist tradition is to say that I can tell you, get really honest about this, then so much of what you're put, you know, putting out or or the way you're even interpreting the world could just be to mute this element rather than to be honest about it. I mean, it's incredible. I, there's so many places I want to go with it, but in the interest of time and the fact that we're going to have six sessions to talk about all this stuff, let's move on to freedom. So the way that, that Yalom is thinking about freedom, it's basically freedom of the will and that ultimately we have choices and we get to shape our own life. You already mentioned Kierkegaard kind of starting this conversation a hundred years prior and saying, hey, you can just go along with the herd and essentially go on autopilot 
But that's not what a life of faith is calling someone to. And then later the atheist existentialists would say, well, there's no life of faith calling you to anything, but you do have free will. And it's going to be really interesting to see how Tillich kind of takes that mm-hmm. and, and turns it into willing and, and courage to will and to choose. But for now, we're just thinking about this, this basic freedom that we have, that we can choose. And so I went into, I think, to a fun place for choosing my freedom song. And this is Folsom Prison Blues by Johnny Cash. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy. Don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry. I mean, there's a lot going on there. I mean, the, the spontaneous applause on that line, I shot a man yeah. in Reno just to watch him die, is its own. That That's its own kind of ethnomusicology paper. But like, that's the line, right, that I'm kind of focusing on. But to give a bit more context in the song, because I'm not playing the whole song. So, you know, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy. Don't ever play with guns. Don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. That kind of terrible freedom, right? That is the most terrible kind of freedom. Like I chose to do this and take someone's life just for the experience of it. But he does feel regret in, in some sense. He, the Cash's character here is not like a mm-hmm. true sociopath. And he hears the train passing And he's talking about the rich folks in the fancy dining cars. They're probably drinking coffee and smoking big cigars, right, of of the train that's going past uh, Folsom Prison. And he says, I knew I had it coming. I know I can't be free, but those people keep moving, and that's what tortures me. It's just a pretty cool example of this. It's a very stark example of the the human free will. And I think it relates pretty well to Albert Camus' book, The Stranger, which mm-hmm. is maybe like the seminal fictional example of existentialism in, in Western literature about a guy who just kills a guy and appears to have essentially none of the standard human emotions or moral compunctions about that action, right? And and Cash doesn't quite go there. He He humanizes his character a bit more. But that taking of a life does hold a, a kind of a high place in the imagination of existentialist thinkers. Um, so that seemed like kind of a, a fun one. I, I'm I'm having a little more fun with this one than Casimir Pulaski Day by Sufjan, as you can tell. What do you think? I actually really like the Folsom Prison live one because they clap, right? Yeah. So Paul, all those people that are sitting there in prison are there because... Their humanity is now completely determined by some act they did. Yeah, um, it might not have been shooting oh, yeah. a man in Reno, but I bet a lot of them, because of poverty, because of abuse, because of cycles that exist in their family, got stuck in situations and made decisions. I bet others, you know, I could have had a psychotic break and done something. Like there are so right. many reasons that get you to do something, but part of the way our penal system functions is to act like every deed you do involves some complete rationality and such. And that song of going like, I did it just to watch him die in many ways is introducing to the people in the prison agency again, like this character did it for a reason and they deeply regret it. 
They don't want to be in there. They, like that's all in the song, but it yeah. is. But the scream, I think, is sitting there going where, with a whole bunch of people that go. This song tells a story where I was an agent, and yes, they could also have been victims. They could have, you know, all these other kind of things. But like they're clapping, it feels to me a lot like to have that kind of resonance that like when a protester laughs at their opponents or this kind of thing, just that it's happening in a prison and recognizing the way so many of the cycles of poverty and violence are intertwined with our financialization of a penal system. Uh, yeah. Like what is, what, how do you even become an individual again in that, that situation? Ah, well, this song is there is an individual that got here for a real reason and he chose it. And yeah, yeah agency. I have three thoughts about that. I'm going to go as quick as I can. Number one, it's 1968 when that record is is recorded and released. Mm -hmm. Think about how much our nuanced understanding of crime, poverty, the mental health, you know, like we have undergone an entire revolution. One of the things that has actually gotten much better about modern Western society is on those kind of axes. And we, and we have, you know, forensic psychologists who will mm -hmm. testify in court to make sure that we are not assuming the same level of culpability for some defendants as we would for others based on their mental state, based on what else we can figure out about them. This is before almost all of that, right? So that kind of injustice at even the sort of psychological and, and, and how that, uh, the forensic psychological level, right, has, has really changed. My second thought is like, think about hip hop coming out of impoverished neighborhoods and the way that people from those areas will hear these kind of grotesque, like violent pieces of poetry that come from their context. And there is a kind of a cheering on of the of that art, even if the listeners don't want to go 187 on a mother and cop. Now I'm quoting a white singer, mm -hmm. of course, sublime. That's my context. But the, the way that someone else might hear Folsom prison and hear them cheering, they could interpret that in a less compassionate way than you just interpreted it as like, Oh, these are the true riffraff of society. We just need to separate from them. And people will say the same thing about black kids from the inner city, right. Who are cheering on gangster rap third, and this is a little musical context. So Johnny Cash did two of these live prison albums. So that was 68. And then the next year, 69, he goes to San Quentin. Um, and by the way, the decision-making around the live albums is depicted pretty well in Walk the Line, the Johnny Cash yeah. biopic, which has its flaws, like almost all musician biopics do. But if you recall, Trip on San Quentin, he plays it for the first time, this new song that he wrote for San Quentin, and they make him play it again. <laughs> So on the record, track six is San Quentin and track seven is San Quentin reprise. I just want to play. This is kind of the moment. This is the ultimate moment of the inmates kind of cheering on and seeing in Johnny Cash's writing and his performance an avatar for themselves mm -hmm. in, in, in his, you know, the character of the song. So here's a little clip from the second San Quentin on the live at San Quentin record. San Quentin, I hate every inch of you. You've cut me and you've scarred me through and through. And I'll walk out a wiser, weaker man. Mr. Congressman, why can't you understand? 
anyway, had to bring that into the conversation as well. You know, one of the things about the the question of freedom, right, is like when it gets shows up in music, sometimes you celebrate freedom by telling a story where just the little crack of freedom, where everything's not completely determined, is the sign of freedom. Mm. And others, it's it's valorizing or celebrating like the fact that you have freedom and freedom is connected to your dignity. Like like when I was thinking about this, I was going like the, the one that immediately pops to mind because I, mean, I grew up listening to it was the free will song by Rush. Right. Because my dad's a huge Rush fan. Listen to the records all the time. If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. You know, that that kind of thing. I uh, will and, choose free will. Yeah, I'm not a and Rush guy, but I know I can't could not have escaped that song on rock radio growing up. But it, <laughs> in, you know, in it, it offers all of these kinds of different explanations of what you do with your finitude and all these mm. kinds of stuff. And then it's like, yeah, yeah, we are. Who knows? But I'm going to choose this one because like human beings have the dignity to do this. Um, and and when I was thinking of these personally, I remember that. Uh, and then there was a certain album that came out when I was an adolescent and who knows if I understood what the hell was going on in the album, but I knew that it felt like all the frustration of adolescence in the nineties, you're sitting there, you're, you're starting to raise questions. You're starting to see that the world that was handed to you is just one among the many options. It's all these rigged games. That was a time where in the whole grunge movement and stuff, you're like, Oh, everyone's being marketed to the adolescents are now just one more market we can seize and we're going to wear flannel and show them how to stick it to it. Uh, and in all these kinds of like this angsty stuff is showing up. And I thought melancholy and the infinite sadness is one of the greatest existentialist rock albums of all time. If that comes on, there's a high chance. I'm just going to listen to the whole thing by smashing pumpkins, by the way. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry for the three of you that don't know <laughs> this album. You should all go listen uh, to it because let's not assume that everybody is on our, uh, alternative nineties, alternative rock tip here. I know Dan, I'm talking like I was talking to you, you know, Yes, I fair. know you've listened to Smashing Pumpkins and you probably prefer the album before because you're cool. Uh, um, they're they're kind of neck and neck for me, actually. But yeah. Bullet with Butterfly Wings is fascinating to me because it doesn't do what Rush did, where it's like, let me lay out the options. Let me just show you how to become a human and seize these things. It goes, let me tell you just how screwed we are. And let me try to tell it to you in the most honest way possible. The world is a vampire and it's going to drain you yeah. it's secret destroyed they hold you up to flight you know and it's going through all of this and, and and i love the line where it goes like uh even though i know i suppose i'll show all my cool and cold like old job right and it's putting you in the situation of job who like you want to go try to do all the right things even that guy gets screwed that part of the bible is wonderfully honest and i'm going to give him shout outs through all of it but don't tell me i'm the chosen one jesus was the only one that's really the only one that gets picked like the the level and mixture of just intense angst and rage that that gives me like that song knows what i feel that i can't find words to with a really cool it's like one of the coolest beginnings of a rock song ever like when you hear it come on and if you're at a concert and they're playing it you're like i don't care if i'm 41 i'm jumping into somebody right now i will feel pain the rest of the week (laughs) why because i don't even know if i'm free but i'm about to get free and hit somebody in this and christians the closest version they got if they you know weren't allowed to go to secular concerts was jesus freak 
But like this is a song <laughs> Jesus Freak wish it was. This is absolutely it. and it captures okay. captures yeah. it. And I just yeah, this crank this one. If you're listening at double speed, you have to slow it down because it's horrible to listen to the beginning of this song at double speed. You don't realize that just the drums and the distortion sees the angst of your finitude and there gives you a freedom because it's going to be as nasty as honesty is. That's why I love this song. All right. Preach trip and preach Billy Corgan. Bullet with butterfly wings by the Smashing Pumpkins. The world is a vampire. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. And I and I love it because like at the end when he's like just screaming, you know, and despite all my rage, I'm still just a rat in a cage. Then some will say what is lost can never be saved. And he's like lost. I haven't even got out of the cage yet. You're sitting around here trying that you want to save me. I haven't even managed to get out of a cage. I'm just stuck here like a rat packed up with my my late 90s angst and, you know, all that's entailed with that. And I just I remember one of the worst sermons use this of all time. Billy Graham preached his sermon uh, at one of his crusades, and he apparently <laughs> ran into Billy Corgan in a elevator, you know, probably staying at the same hotel, uh, because where rock stars stay is also where preachers of the rock gospel star preachers. Yeah. yeah. And he tells a story about it and he's like, well, you know, but Jesus can get you out of the cage and blah, blah, blah. Like, and it was just this, this cheesy thing. And I just wanted, I just wanted to say like, no, like you've never broached a level of honesty about the powers that everything else in the world render unto you, where you're born in the world in that time and your family, your culture, your class, all these kinds of things lay it on you. Then your desires, right? In the first verse that uh, when he talks about how the uh, betrayed desires in a piece of game, like even these things you think you want, they're actually just the result of a bunch of people generating desire in you. And this is before Instagram, right? You know, and it starts <laughs> going through all this. And I'm like, the, yeah. the, the response, response of the gospel is not to be like, oh, don't worry, you're stuck in a cage because you're a sinner or whatever. Like, I think like this is one of those times where you just wish Kierkegaard had been in the thing and he would have been like, finally, finally, someone that's taking this precious gift of life series, like precious, I'm blah, 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 blah. He's like, yes, but that is the conditions for life, right? Like, and if you can't admit and, and be honest that it is it is a, just a human part of experience for trying to be honest that you wonder if you're not just some animal stuck in a cage getting played with uh, and mm. that all these notions of freedom and all these notions of possibility and all these cheesy cat posters in their 90s elementary school that's like you can win the day and carpe diem and stuff all that kind of stuff is just like a big scam and like you're just like is this really what's going on is this how this works and I just, I just love that song it's like if you're going to do freedom, then let's just admit, 
let's just admit how trapped everything is. Even your you aren't even transparent to your desires. They could be playing you for a game. And that's great. I, I don't really have anything to add there. And I think that here here's a joke for the uh, white male millennials that are listening. Billy Corgan is a pretty good bridge into the third existential reality, which is isolation. <laughs> uh, okay, so let so let's move into let's move into isolation here. We should give a shout out. What's the episode where on uh, Pretty Good Vibrations, where you and your drummer friend are talking about like epic rock drummers? Because I had never placed the Smashing Pumpkins drummers like like hardcore epic rock. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go listen to this. And that was another one of those occasions where I right. just, oh, I'm just listening the whole thing. That was the early 90s major label debuts episode of Pretty Good Vibrations, which yeah. is a very oddly specific uh, focus. I, I, things have gotten a little less specific than that since then. Um, but yeah, I do I do have a music podcast. It's pretty unrelated to the stuff that we do here on You Have Permission and the stuff that you do on Homebrewed trip well until you have the counting crows out episode until, until the counting crows episode yeah you. yeah exactly <laughs> worst live versions uh, oh, will be the oh, title uh, of that episode no i'm sorry i know i give you a crap for them all the time but yeah so let's talk about isolation isolation as yalom would describe it is this idea that fundamentally human beings are one each we are each one being and we are born into a community. We're born into a family. And actually when we're really little, we don't have much sense of our, you know, sort of individuality. But as we get older, we do. And we die alone. So that inevitability of death, our experience of our own death is something that we will necessarily experience alone. And throughout our life, we we do combine with other people we relate we can be less isolated. And in fact, Yalom and, and almost every therapist in the world is always looking for ways that our clients can be more connected to other people in their life, that they, you can sort of reduce this isolation. But if we are being fully honest about the bedrock of human experience, there is an isolation at the core of it. I might have moments, I know Trip. you always like to talk about the moment of making love and looking into each other's eyes and maybe occasionally crying. That's kind of one of your great analogies. That moment, it might feel like I am not isolated from my beloved, but there's going to be a moment later when that's all done where, you know, in the, uh, <laughs> in the seventies Hollywood Renaissance film, we'd be having a post-coital, post-coital cigarette. And now I'm back to being alone again. And ultimately that is a part of being human, this isolation. So mm -hmm. I was, tr when choosing songs, I gave myself a prompt at the beginning and I was like, I'm going to see if I can cram in both a Beach Boys track and a Weezer track into this existential playlist thing. I, I did not succeed at getting a Weezer track. Weezer lyrics, not known for their depth and, uh, I don't know, depth of meaning or topic, but I did get a Beach Boys song in here. And this is not quite the type of deep existential isolation that Yalom's talking about. It is more like interpersonal isolation. The song is called I Just Wasn't Made for These Times. And you actually were texting me before we started. And you're like, I thought that was going to be your freedom song. And I was laughing because it's my isolation song. This is a song that Brian Wilson co-wrote with with Tony Asher, who, who co-wrote all the lyrics on Pet Sounds, uh, the best Beach Boys album. But Brian Brian's isolation 
was of a, of a deeper sort in some ways because he is a unique musical talent and also a person with really serious mental health issues that he's had at least since his early mid twenties. Uh, he's been diagnosed with, I, I think it's schizotypal or schizo, one of the schizo personality disorders. Um, it's not quite as strong as full-blown schizophrenia. It's like one click below that, but it's very destabilizing. Um, he hears voices. He's never stopped hearing voices um, in his head. And it comes paired with this insane musical talent where at his best, he could do things that Lennon and McCartney together uh, could either barely do or not do at all, depending on who you ask. And this is a song kind of about that. The The lyric where we're going to start is they say I got brains, but they ain't doing me no good. And it's about being sad. And, and, and actually, it's also about isolation from friends. There's another part in the song, you know, my fair weather friends, people who are around me when things are going well, but they, they don't stick around when things are not going well. It's this really impassioned cry from a genius who feels totally isolated. So here is I Just Wasn't Made For These Times. I've been trying hard to find the people that I won't leave behind. They say I got brains, but they ain't doing me no I wish they could. Each time things start to happen again, I think I got something. What do you think? Oh no, I I love that song, and I it was on my list, and I was like, I know Dan's gonna, he's gonna, <laughs> yeah. He's gonna thank go you for, for not this. scooping me there. One of the things that the isolation theme is is that it gets captured in songs by letting us in on your internal monologue, because yeah. in isolation you don't really know if you can tell anyone anything or if they'll understand. And one of the ways this song I think has this double haunting of sorts is. The, the lyrics are utterly creepy and you could put it to like some death metal music or something where like the lyrics work. And then there's these beautiful harmonies and stuff yeah. going on. And it's like beach boys at their peak melody uh, type things. And just the contrast of it is the feeling of isolation. We're sitting there like, in theory, things should be going good. There's not like like you can look around and you see people that are having these deep bouts of depression that come out of this experience of isolation isolation where it's just so palpable that even the world around you people that love you or care for you things could be going good and all this kind of stuff and like well i wasn't made for this this is this is not that thing that 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 contrast of the kind of raw honesty of the lyrics set next to a beautiful pop song and these tight harmonies where all these the, the musicians and the artists are all working together and yet it's telling the story of someone who doesn't know if they are really being understood and if they're equipped to, right? Like I have my brain and I should be thinking good. And it's just one of these songs that until you sit and read the lyrics, you could be distracted uh, that 
oh, this is just a peace. You know, I want to put on peaceful, easy feeling next, you know, because may throw some eagles on. No, no, pay attention to lyrics. It's it's a different encounter with everything around you. I love music and film. And one thing that comes up a lot when people talk about music, film or other artistic mediums is this desire of the artist to be known. Uh, this mm. is actually probably the number one lyrical theme for Rivers Cuomo, singer and songwriter of Weezer, who is my favorite rock band. Beach Boys are my favorite band, if that hasn't become clear. And that desire to be known comes out of, I mean, if we're going to throw an ex, if we're going to throw this frame on it, that's a direct result of that fundamental isolation. Mm. Fundamentally, I am myself only and no one else is me and no one else knows what I'm going through. And I desperately want to be known. I think that this is a the basic psychological drive behind partnering. There are other mm-hmm. drives. We have sexual drives. We have other kinds of drives. But the basic psychological drive is is to be known. Uh, one of the basic ones, anyway. And so we get so much great art from the friction that is caused by our fundamental isolation. That's something mm-hmm. I, I just put a note to kind of make sure we talk about that in a little bit more depth when we are doing the reading group classes, sessions, whatever you want to call them. Because I, I just think it's really rich. But let's move on to to your on, isolation track. Okay, I, okay, okay. I was I okay. got If you were gonna go for your Weezer song, the perfect connection to this is "I Want a Dog." It's Rivers' best one on, on this. Like, what great lyrics! I love "I Want a Dog." It's one of their newer ones. I want a dog to curl up beside me. I want a dog because he would keep me company. I want a dog because he would look out for me, cheer me up when I don't think I'll make it. I want a dog because he'd try to lick my face and he would smile when I get home to my place. I want a dog because sometimes humans hold it all inside. I need to feel connected. I made the wrong choice. Now I must pay the price trapped in my body. And oh my, oh my, I want a dog to lead me to the backyard and fetch the ball as if he was my lifeguard. I want a dog to walk softly beside me, guide me home. I wish I had a dog. We're keeping score. We're all rational agents. We make our deals to try to get more famous. I made my bed. Now I'm going to lie in it. That's what I get. I just wish I had a dog. Yeah, that's good. And you think about that notion of isolation and the fact that it's a dog that's lit. Like humans and dogs evolve precisely for this reason. Like we have these deep relationships with dogs. Uh, we, we, we've co-evolved. It would be hard to imagine humans and dogs existing as they currently are without each other right. and the role we played. And you want to know what I want to see when I feel isolated and I don't think anyone that's going to use words will uh, even understand. So I think it'd be just bullshit. They either need to sit there and be quiet or uh, they just need to listen to some music with me or whatnot. They better not try talking and understanding or I could just cuddle with my dog or talk to Jesus. You know, the, the and that's one of the reasons I like when you were saying the Weezer song, I was like, oh, junk, you might go to I want a dog. Plus, you got to love when he just writes these like lyrics that sound like a middle schooler yeah uh, but but actually have some real depth to them yeah yeah if you'd like more you have permission you can become a patron at patreon.com slash dan coke that link is in the show notes patrons get at least two additional episodes per month exclusive to them as well as access to the patron-only Facebook group, which is an awesome little online community for talking through all the crap that we are thinking as our faiths and our lives change. Um, it's a great, great community. So again, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. Uh, support something that you care about and join the community. 
back to the episode. Okay, well, I actually, I am going to play one Weezer song here because you made me think of another one, which is maybe a more important song to me musically, and, and a lot more Weezer fans would know it. It's it's a bit problematic. It's a song called Across the Sea from Pinkerton, and it has Weezer in his early fame days struggling with isolation, depression, other things like that. And he gets this letter from a, a girl in Japan. He calls her an 18-year-old girl, which does beg the question, <laughs> a very specific that's a very specific number to say, uh, you know, it's like, well, what if she was 17? Anyway, he doesn't, I don't think he ever meets this person, at least not in the song, but it's like this idea of the chorus is, why are you so far away from me? And in this case, they're separated by an ocean, right? She is in Japan. All he's got is her letter. She's got this song he wrote. Uh, but I think it's like something about her is intriguing to him and he just feels this sense of disconnection. And just because you've kind of encouraged me to, now I'm going to play a little bit of Weezer. So this is from Across the Sea off Pinkerton. Oh, literally any excuse to play Weezer I will take it oh that's that's a quote that whole album's good let's move on to your isolation song uh do you want to set it up or you want me to play it I'll just say the uh image running through the song and this is the acoustic version of this song from a live album because Dan loves Counting Crows live songs but I hate the way that he changes the melodies every time you yeah. gave this hot take about that and Dustin from Thrice was there and he said but some of their live songs are the definitive version. And he said, we agreed the acoustic live version of angel of the silences is the definitive version. The okay. others, even the album rock version is, is not the primary one, but this song angels of the silences is a reflection of the God and Adam, the big Michelangelo Sistine chapel thing, the fingers almost touching surrounded yeah. by the angels. And so he's using that picture on the ceiling while sitting there in bed with someone that he doesn't have a connection with. And it, it, it plays out. So like the notion of the angels, the silences are like, what happens when you're sitting under there with this picture? Will they touch? Are they pulling away and all that kind of stuff? Cool. Let's hear it. Angels of the silences by counting crows. I will not be an enemy of anything I'll 
briefly, let me talk about why that is a good live version. He has someone harmonizing with him, so he has to sing the note that they have rehearsed. He can't just go off and do his own scatting thing. He's got because he's got harmonies. Someone else is singing. That brings him in, reigns him in, and that's that's really beautiful. Oh, it, it's one of those things where you know he's sitting there thinking about Michelangelo painting it. And then his deep conflicted relationship to the divine. He's sitting there in bed with someone and he knows he's hurt them or he's going to hurt them again. And, and just like many of the people that uh, he's tried to partner with, he's going to break their uh, hearts. And so he's sitting there in bed with someone and, and he knows this isn't going to work. And that's when he dreams of Michelangelo uh, mm. doing this painting, wondering like, well, I got my sins. Like, what do, what do I have to do to get to a point where I can have genuine connection again between God, but even this person who's even gotten so vulnerable to get in my bed, but I don't feel known or trusted. And I feel judged and all this isolation leads to this deep uh, judgment that's there. And this picture, the picture of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel and such is one that Counting Crows uh, or Adam, the songwriter picks up throughout their albums and picks yeah. up like there's also certain characters that show back up. Uh, I recently started reading this biography of Adam Duritz because, you know, because you I'm, love I, him. Yeah, he's yeah. a great artist in it. It mentions he's a few of the interviews where he's ever managed to talk about songs. Uh, and this one, because I guess when the rock version was really popular and stuff, he was like, people just didn't understand it. And he said, I write quite a few songs where the sort of issue is kind of faith or maybe the possibility of having faith or keeping faith. And this song in particular is about the difficulty of having faith in things or finding faith, finding things to have faith in, in yourself and God. And like he said, a woman, faith is a weird thing. It is in a sense, it is all about waiting. It's not actually about getting anything, you know, faith is about the wait, because once you get something, there's no need anymore. So a lot about faith is just the willingness to sort of throw yourself on a fence and hang there for a while. That's a very difficult and bitter thing. In the song, I keep saying the, the main character, I, I said, all my sins, I would pay for them. I could come back if I could come back to you. It's not just about finding things to believe in. It's about wanting to be able to believe in anything, too. And it's about all the voices that get inside your head and whisper for you to do it or not do it as well. That's why it's called the angels of the silences. One, it's always good when you find out that your interpretation of something isn't really far off. That, uh, yeah, that, that's a good feeling for sure. Because uh, uh, I have been disappointed. In other situations, but, but that, <laughs> that, but I love that, like that he uses the words faith for the angst of isolation and this wanting to be in the condition of risking your yeah. existence to, to potentially have something, but you know, seizing it misses the point. And I think that that is the positive turn of isolation in the existentialist tradition, both um, the theist and atheist version is it like part of isolation is honest. Like part of it is you'll never get the kind of connection that completes you. Totally. And so then what do you do? Like this song is this pleading where there's all these broken things. There's is this dream of actually being known and loved by a partner, this dream of being Adam that touches God's hand. And, and then all of a sudden you hear the angels that are singing, you can paint them, but are they really singing? Are they really there? And like in all that isolation, uh, he's telling the story because, because he's wanting to remind himself like, no, 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 this is, this is about the risk that's required for faith in any form. Uh, and, and that like, what, what is the setting where you get to talk about faith, honestly, where it's not just believing something, uh, but risking the self uh, that like isolation 
taking ownership for yourself and your ends and how you relate to other uh, beginnings. Anyway, and plus, it's also just an awesome song. Well, we're going to get into this probably briefly today when we get to Courage and kind of Tillich's rejoinder to the existential concerns. But I think we're going to spend a lot of time around this stuff in the actual class because the ultimate question about theistic or Christian faith in the existential context is which kinds of faith and religious practice take this stuff seriously and which kinds are actually just a way to avoid dealing with the existential realities. And when you're talking about Adam Duritz talking about faith, he's talking about it in the Tillich and Kierkegaardian sense. And what Yalom thinks about all faith is that, or maybe all religion, that's probably safer to say, that all religious systems are just a way of kind of avoiding these realities and are obviously untrue in their in their truth statements. They're obviously false. And what theistic existential thinkers have pushed back on him on, which we'll probably end up getting to in, in the most depth in the final session where we're kind of responding to Yalom, is that he's kind of cutting, he's chopping out an entire portion of being human and just saying that's off limits. But what a Christian existentialist would say is no, there is a version that is basically just denying death, freedom, isolation, and meaninglessness, or our, our we're going to talk about meaning, meaninglessness and the creation of meaning in a second here. You know, there are versions that do that, but then there are really genuine versions that don't sidestep those. And they are a sort of faithful engagement of those with like co-creation, collaboration with the divine, right? And, and that's really the sticky and interesting stuff of where faith and existentialism overlap in my mind. And that's a cool, like the Duritz thing is a cool way of kind of mm-hmm. jumping into that a bit. Yeah. And one of the things about songs that I find helpful is it, you also see it in poetry and such is the distinction, right? Between whatever metaphysical connection that religious language has or not to reality. Uh, it doesn't really matter much in the song using that language whether how Bill Maloney uses it or Adam Duritz doesn't the reality of God doesn't change the the power of the language because ultimately existentialism like you aren't going to get confidence and certainty about it anyway uh, but it does right. structure what you do with your finitude uh, how you enact your existence but and and you know and that's why I think for Kierkegaard and for Tillich. Uh, you know, Tillich talks about like the leap of faith or this riskiness and such. And um, t- uh, Kierkegaard, well, in Tillich, um, one of the elements of of courage is like, no, no, well, if you aren't going to get certainty and finality and doubt and all these things are just entailed in faith, then faith ultimately involves like a deep risk. It involves a, de- a decision that you could do otherwise, but this is where you locate yourself and give yourself and put yourself out in the world. Right. We'll get to it later. But the ultimate question of but is there an eschatological banquet, as you called it earlier? Is there a time where the divine makes things good and just? And in a, in most Christian and other religious traditions, we get some version of that, of things working out. And and for Yalom, that's a cop out. If you rest on that, then you're believing a fairy tale that is distracting you from you know, the, the realities, but Christian existentialists would, would disagree. And so I'm, I'm excited to get into that territory in, in the class. 
Uh, let's move on to meaninglessness. So for Yalom and other existentialists, especially of the atheistic type, there is no inherent meaning to anything in life. Life is, empirically speaking, meaninglessness, meaningless. However, human beings with our cognitive, emotional, and other capacities, we create meaning. And, and meanings change. They change for personal reasons, for cultural reasons. They might change for genetic reasons. They change for, for all these reasons. And yet the act of making meaning is it's related to freedom. It is one of these capacities that we have, that we have been, well, for y'all, we haven't been given it. We just have it. But a Christian existentialist would say something like, yes, God has given us co-creation duties. People talk about Adam naming the animals as a great analogy for sort of this creative ability that, that humans have that we, that God has given us from a theistic perspective. So that's one of the real tension areas between a theistic and an atheistic ex existentialism, but both would acknowledge the real role and the real contingency of meaning that it could, you could, it could mean something else. I mean, I talk about this with clients all the time when we're doing cognitive behavioral therapy that, you know, you see, you get some stimulus, you get some data and you interpret that data. You basically put a meaning on it. But if you start to change the way that you think, then your automatic meaning that you assign will change over time. So even with our freedom of will, we actually can change the meanings that we assign to various things. Lots to get into there when we get deep into the class. But my song is an art by an artist called Valley Maker, uh, Austin Crane, formerly a Seattleite, now in South Carolina. And the song is called Pretty Little Life Form. And he's kind of going back to basically pre-human history. And there's a, a way that I'd like to kind of tie that in to meaninglessness and meaning making. But but here's the track first. Pretty little life form, can I take you back to the beginning of everything when we crawled out of the ocean and nothing was good and everything was in between because I wanted to start over. I want to think of you as you think of me. And are you when life is death and death is in between. Pretty little life form, can I take you back to the beginning of everything when we crawled out of the ocean and nothing was good and everything was in between? Because I wanted to start over, I want to think of you as you think of me, and are you everlasting when life is death and death is in between? I don't pretend to know everything he, he's meaning by this. It sounds to me like he's kind of talking to God, at least at some point here. But I just love that idea of when we crawled out of the ocean and nothing was good, like nothing was good yet. There's not really mm -hmm. any morality yet. There's not the kind of moral meaning that, that humans make. And what the atheist existentialists would say is that there literally was no good then. There's only good, quote unquote, once there are people to call something good or not good, or maybe on other planets, other sentient life forms to call things good or not good. Now that the theistic existentialist might disagree and say, no, God has ideas about what is good, even before there are people to make that meaning. But I think that's it's an interesting fulcrum point to sort of compare the two. 
So that's why I chose it. I don't have a ton else to say, but I'd love to kind of get your thoughts. That image, it works both for like, well, could we go back and, you know, and start the long cosmic story of life on this planet again? And maybe things would turn out different. Mm, uh, like rewind the tape and, and have it go a different way. Yeah. And, in, in, you know, what's interesting is like there's also the first time God repents in the Bible, right? Like the flood and stuff mm. is, oh, I would, how did we get here? Right. Uh, let's start again. But also, you know, it works as well if you go back to the the beginning of a relationship where you have so much history with the person and then you realize, I don't know if we can get over who we've become to each other. Hmm. Like, I, I know this matters to me. And so, like, what if I went back? What if we started over? Right. Like, and, you know, metaphorically started yeah. the evolution of the relationship again, because the desire to want to start over means you wish it had turned out different, right? Like, right. yeah, it was right. before there was good and bad, the yeah. judgments you end up having of each other about different parts, but you're desiring to start over because you really grieve where it's gotten to. And the everlasting bit you get, obviously, when it's God, but then there's also that question of when you really love someone, like if we started over, right, would we fall in love again? Like, what, are, are, are you really my person? And that would how all this thing would go, or is it, you know, ultimately contingent? That that story of how meaning is woven into our history, both on the macro and micro scales there, I think is a tension that you get the relationship stuff, you know, covered over and they're like, oh, it's my soulmate or, you know, those kind of lines. Or when you think of the big one, like this is how God, you know, orchestrated it and planned it. And the song is like wagering in a sense that like, I wonder if all the things I wish I could preserve would still be here if we redid the history and replayed the tape or mm -hmm. I could have been the person you ultimately saw as good. Yeah. One last thing I'll say is when he's talking about when life is death, I mean, that kind of goes back to that first mm -hmm. one of death that, that essentially the way things work in this universe is that finitude requires that all life have an end, that all things must pass to, to bring uh, George Harrison back into the conversation so this, yeah, this, this song ties in in some cool ways. Let's move to your song just in the interest of time. So for meaninglessness, you have given me Frightened Rabbit, Keep Yourself Warm. Anything you want to say to set this up? Well, I'll just say I had five Frightened Rabbit songs. There were three okay. bands that I had a song for all the, well, I didn't have a song for Courage for them, but the other four. And I did the same for Counting Crows and Bill Maloney and the Vigilantes of Love. Like those were like, oh, these are immediately obvious because these are people yeah. I hang out with. And I went back and forth on this one from either Keep Warm to Modern Leper, which is this you know story of people <laughs> like a leper ultimately losing all their limbs and wondering uh, like, like, why are you even here? And, it, it, and But this one, the pin chant towards the end when thinking of meaninglessness, where he has a line where he keeps repeating, it takes more than someone to keep yourself warm. Hmm. And the, the images we even think of intimacy and stuff can ultimately be meaningless is uh, a real challenge. And yeah, it's said crudely and stuff in the, in the songwriter ultimately committed suicide and was plagued with deep depression and things. So, but I don't think that means that there aren't plenty of people who recognize all the things we tell stories about as if they have meaning could secretly never keep you warm. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's cool. Let's hear it. I didn't know that he had uh, died by suicide. That's, that's really sad. 
Here's Keep Yourself Warm by Frightened Rabbit. I'm drunk, I'm drunk, and you're probably on pills. If we both got the same diseases, it's a relevant girl. And the rules of steam are evaporates, disappears, my That's a cool track. I, I don't know that song. Oh, like you could really go anywhere in the song. And by the end, it gets more and more depressing. But that that particular verse is this this deep story of escapism, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm working for the weekend. Right. And then what happens is, you know, these two people find each other at a club and they go back to their hole and and get together. And it, it's like when the lights go out, do you, do you even see how you're looking right now? Do I look this way? It's like this one where you realize we are just not going to admit that this is all a scam because we just want the possibility of finding some meaning right in the moment. And so we're just both going to lie to each other and, and this kind of thing. And I think that, you know, even that line of like, and, and he repeats it and it gets more and more intense and sorry for mom for using the F word so many times, but like it takes more than fucking someone to keep yourself warm is one of these things that like, well, what happens if you're, 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 you work all day to live in this moment. And then you go to this escapist place and you're like, have all the music. And then you go home with someone and then you're in the dark. And that's one example, right? But there's so many of them. There are versions of it for us, 40 year old dads that don't even have the kind of free time to go do that. Um, and, <laughs> and I, it not just freedom of time, Trip. Right. No, you know, like, yeah. no, I just mean, I didn't want people to think like, oh, look at the shallow teenagers. Right. No, no, <laughs> it's, it's whatever. He's describing uh, an experience that is more common in people's like 20s. Right. Mm-hmm. Of like where you're going to like you're going clubbing and you're hooking up and that's kind of your main sort of release from the work week. But there are different versions as you get older. And right. Yeah. In the line, it, like the love line, you won't find love in a hole. Right. Like you think this is this interactive thing, all the dancing and interactive, but you're really in a hole. Like you're the only one that's there for you right now. And everyone is. It's a giant group form of masturbation. Right. Like it's really just about you and hoping to simulate deep knowing and deep relationships. But you're like, that's the boat, the closest you can get to having meaning. So let's just not tell each other that we really don't know each other. We don't know our faces. Turn the lights off. Let's not admit we look empty and lonely. Now, I know people. And and I've had these times where I'm talking to a friend and I feel that way, or I'm talking to my partner. This is a real challenge of sorts, right? And so it, that's that's why I love this song. And I would just say there are versions of going out and drinking too much that are full of meaning. There's a difference between going to a nightclub and going to have a one night stand with a random purpose and going to the pub and telling stories with your best friends or listening to a blues artist tell their tell their heartbreak and having solidarity. Like, you know, there are 
like you could go out on the town as an individual in a very diff- different way. You yeah. Know? So don't, but right. that meaninglessness comes up where it creeps in. Uh, and he's wanting to like say, like, let me tell you, like, this experience that I'm completely invested in, engaged in, and, and like organizing my existence around, uh, it, it's really me in a hole. And I wonder yeah. if I'll ever be no- known. And I'm cold and alone, and yet I'm sitting next to someone. Yeah. Well, what Yalom and existential therapists would sort of point to at that point is the best meaning making that you do is one that is rooted in your values, right? So there are mm-hmm. people for whom they do a lot of this kind of activity, you know, of sort of basically hedonistic, I'm, I'm not trying to load that up too much, but sort of pleasure seeking hedonistic behavior that ultimately leads to more or less shallow kind of experiences as we might call them. There are some values in that. Maybe someone really loves music. Um, there might be times when a casual sexual encounter is what the doctor ordered, so to speak. But generally speaking, you want people to do meaningful activities that line up with their deepest values. And so you're talking about other ways of going out on the town. But if you're going out on the town because your grad school buddy is in town for the weekend and you want to reconnect and, and kind of catch each other up and experience something fun together and sort of deepen that friendship. Well, you're still going out, maybe dancing and drinking or whatever, but you're doing it for this deeper value of connection with someone who's been in your life. Right. So that's where the kind of meaning making comes in. And that's why existential therapy will want to focus on values and discover those deep values. And then let's try and make our meaning based on those. And of course we won't go there. We'll go there later in the class, but religion can step in and have a lot to say about those values. And if your values do align with your religious tradition, um, Mm -hmm. if there is a, a nice overlap there, then they also provide rituals and practices and language for how to think about and make decisions. And, and this is one of the ways that healthy religion can provide great meaning for people and really fight against this, this existential, possibly built in meaninglessness and meaning making. Of course, the theist and the atheist will have some disagreements there. You know, this is one of those where just like earlier, when we talked about freedom, there are different ways of getting at it in song, like Dylan's like a rolling stone. Uh, song is a wonderful one about meaninglessness because there are all these vignettes of these different places, especially in that 60s moment where you might find meaning that you find as a sham and you're getting played. Yeah. Or like if you think of our coming of age time, Smells Like Teen Spirit is a song about meaninglessness. Uh, and uh, But then it has this more celebratory, like I'm honest about what's going on and I'm going to make fun of it precisely by singing about it. Uh, so right. one of the things uh, Yalom and Tillich both talk about is this existential situation is a growing uh, we're growingly aware of it in Western culture because the infrastructure of like meaning, purpose and value that comes woven through a rich framework of culture uh, where we have shared big stories and such is going out. Then it's like, what do you do? Um, some just come up, you know, act like an apologist and try to pop up these prop up these structures or you know, oh, the baby boomers are like, well, let's just get get a parachurch organizations and parallel institutions and keep them around everyone that believes it and stuff. And so I think one of the things you even see in 
uh, American pop music that shifts uh, just in our examples, right? As these ones from the sixties and seventies have a different relationship with these themes where they're among the leading group culturally that are becoming increasingly aware of the existential crisis. Then you get our generation coming of age and the Xers and such where it's like, Oh, of course this is the case. I can't believe our parents are still trying to sell us this BS. Give me the angst. Give me the flannel bullet with butterfly wings smells like teen spirit and stuff. And then like, the the frightened rabbit style and those that are uh really uh the post 9-11 ones yeah. will name it as explicitly painful as possible because the protest is required for the potential of anything different. And and I think you can see in that generational shift the anxieties that both of these thinkers are naming. Y'all who's 92 now and wrote it a while ago until yeah. it who's writing it post-World War II, and the collapse of meaning and crisis is much bigger for him as a German and a European than America at that time, because we were like, oh, junk, back-to-back World War champs. Exactly, yeah, back-to-back <laughs> champions. And so yeah. I just say, like, I find it fascinating in looking at this with songs and then going, what yeah. was happening at the time? You can see the different modalities, but mm-hmm. what's going to be fun in the class, I think, is us going, yeah, yeah, let's look at these. Now, what happens if we take these questions and topics seriously, both to think about big pictures, but also to think about ourselves? Like, how do you how do you and I frame these? How do people in the in our conversations in the group and stuff frame these challenges and questions? I, I'm totally pumped to make playlist about the five different things and everyone gets to pick a song and see what comes up and who, mm. you know, and that kind of stuff. Anyway, I'm just excited about it. And I, I think, you, you know, Socrates well, Plato says Socrates said the unexamined life isn't worth living. And I think the existential questions are the ones that are required for uh, Western humanity today to really have an examined life. Totally they, agree. It, they, they are generated by honesty about our cultural moment. Yeah. Well, let's move to courage. So, you know, we've got Yalom's four existential realities. And then the way that we've kind of figured out how to make this both about psychology and theology is, is you brought in. Paul Tillich and his book, The Courage to Be. And the way that I understand it is like courage is sort of Tillich's answer to Yalom's problem. Right. But why don't you set that up in the way that I've been setting up the the first four? Yeah, I would just say one courage to be is a beautiful, a beautiful text. It was like a bestseller in the English speaking language for months, like New York Times bestseller. He was Times man of the year. You know, I I know it's hard for us to imagine a theologian doing that, but yeah. it happened. Um, <laughs> Incredible. And yeah. when you read this book, okay, if you're a nerd, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's like baby Tillich. You know, this is where he's he's writing for normal people. But I'm having read it with undergrads recently. They don't feel like this is easy reading. But the notion of courage here uh, comes because the first half of the book, he's sitting there trying to say, like, that there's a certain kind of anxiety that characterizes our culture. There's this deep loss of meaning that characterizes our life. Then what do you do with that anxiety? Like our own finitude. Part of it is the the fragility of beliefs and systems and institutions. Uh, part of it is, you know, you're born to suffer and die. And what do you do with it? He starts going through all these anxieties that he sees connected to the threat of non-being. And we'll talk about which is philosophically, but courage is something he wants to say has been a response running through through the Western philosophy and Western uh, religious traditions. And so he'll talk about the Stoics to like Nietzsche and the kind of uh, the, the courage of life and uh, or, or Spinoza and these kind of things that there are different ways courage is framed. And for him, the notion of the courage to be 
when he's talking about it uh, is is primarily about three things the courage to be as a part like how do you choose to be a part of anything uh and what is it like seizing that for yourself the courage to be oneself right in relationship to these things and the courage to accept acceptance and there it, it's connected to like the for him the way finitudes related to infinity and this is a, it, like he has a lot of reasons for saying it um when he preaches this theme he has a beautiful sermon uh, that I've seen stolen by a number of preachers at college chapels because they don't know what to say to college students. And the, the sermon title is Accept the Fact You're Accepted. Part of inheriting a rich tapestry of meaning is that you, as you learn your culture, you find, oh, you know, I'm in a place with meaning and value. I know where I came from and where I'm going, and now I'm just going to rest in this. And that's not what we have anymore. But what happens if culture is structured on these big questions in relationship to our finitude. And uh, what happens if we take the fact that to exist is to be addressed by these questions of freedom, these questions of what you're going to do with your freedom and your finitude and these kinds of things. And the courage uh, comes from accepting the fact uh, <laughs> that this this is the situation. What do you do with it? Um, and, and obviously, yeah. like for him, it, it plays theological, but it, it in a sense, he's going, if you're just going to complain, deny, repress, or ignore the situation, you'll never muster up within yourself to get to be yourself, to get your be yourself in relationship with your neighbors and enemies, to get to be yourself in the institutions, communities, and stories that, you, that you're a part of, or to get to be yourself before God. It's precisely in knowing your endings and beginnings and things that the potential for true existence or living before you die uh, becomes possible. And so what is the gift of faith is the gift of courage to accept the fact that you're accepted. You've been already given the gift of your finitude. You know, there's that line where Frodo's talking with Gandalf in Lord of the Rings and he goes on this whole thing. Oh, I wish I hadn't been born in this time. And I wish the ring hadn't come to me. And he's just you're doing this complaining like where I find myself thrown in the world. I can give you a whole bunch of reasons. I wish things were different. And Gandalf says, yeah, I wish I didn't well, go to college when you couldn't buy a single family home and you had to have $100,000 of debt. I mean, you know, like yeah, that, yeah. That, that's like our version of it. Yeah. What does Gandalf say? Oh, and, and he says to him after Frodo finishes complaining, uh, and I don't have a good Ian McClellan voice, but Gandalf says, so do all who live to see such times, right? Wish you could have been someone else or in some other time or some other place. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil, right? And that there's something else at work, but all you get to do is decide what to do with your whatever little freedom you can squeeze out of your existence. That is where you put your courage. That is where faith is found. And that actually gives you permission to have faith that that contains doubt within it, to have faith that contains the threats, that meaninglessness and isolation, all these things. You get to tell the truth if courage is, is your disposition. And I think we all know how flaccid a lot of religious speak is when it just ignores points one through four and it's like, no. Absolutely. That's a great little introduction. I'm going to go into my song here and it is a Wilco song called You Never Know. And I would say that this song really kind of borders on whether or not the speaker is going to have the courage. There's a little bit of resignation in it. 
there is a claim of not caring anymore, which is repeated many times, uh, which is very melodic. Like it's a great sort of great syllables for the melody there. Like from a songwriting perspective, it's it's very clever. But there's also an, an acknowledgement of the time in which we're living. And I'm choosing this one because it's feels very contemporary to me, especially with mm-hmm. climate change and you know, economic development slowdown around the rest of the world and the kind of the dream of uh, 80s and 90s prosperity um, and even sort of the Bono one campaign, you know, early 2000s kind of optimism is is being tempered a bit. And some in some ways, the the climate issues seem to be accelerating and, and visible quicker than we thought that they would be or hope that they would be. And he's he also kind of addresses the escapism of uh, left behind theology and various other generations when he says, you know, every generation thinks it's the end of the world. Mm-hmm. But the line that I really like is in the chorus. It's a fear we transcend that we're here at the end. And, you know, whether or not the songwriter or the, the speaker really is transcending or that is, is maybe up for the to the listener to decide. But I, I like the way it's framing that question. So here's You Never Know by Wilco. Come on, children, you're acting like children. Every generation thinks it's the end of the world. love wilco i have to say for a guy whose voice only does his voice he can do multiple like from like more poppy rock stuff to like real deal country to like angsty americana and things like they get always ah yeah wilco jeff tweedy but it's a versatile sameness and i don't not a lot of people with that distinctive voice can can do that i it's just you always know it's him but yeah. like Tom Petty has that distinctive voice, but Tom Petty doesn't do a bunch of different types of songs. No, not really. He's like, no, that's a Tom Petty song. Uh, Jeff Tweedy is a, whew, he's a generational talent. Well, let's let's talk about your song again. Just being kind of mindful of the clock here. Another Bill Maloney track. Set it up. Okay, so uh, it's called "I'll Never Be Normal After This," and and it, it really like if you go through the verses, you'll hear the different themes we've talked about, and then what courage sounds like. And uh, I'll, I'll just read them and then like, you'll get that the way he goes back and forth between intimate relation, intimate imagery of the person and intimate with God. It's called now most of my friends, they bailed out on me long ago and they've all got their stories for the paths that they've chosen. See, for some, their family's love felt like a boxer's blow. Now they spend their days feeling small wherever they roam. 
But hey, there are drugs to help you see God, and there are drugs for when you're depressed, and there are drugs that make you harder still for when you get undressed, and there's drugs for the guiltiness, so you'll fill one with the universe. But girl, you were the only one to ever break the curse. Yeah, it could have been your eyes, but I suspect it was your kiss. Honey, I'll never be normal after this. And so like the beginning has to do with like this finding one person that actually stays with you and thinks you think you're known in this deep love. And then you can see it shifts. Now, everyone's a junkie since daylight's such a pain. We're all looking for some darkness to stick into our veins. For some of us, it's lust. For others, it's power. And some of us, it's playing songs and drinking after hours, which which is himself. I think uh, it starts. The song starts right where that ends. Okay, here we go. What if it's for a purpose? What if we use our better faith? They say that God, he doesn't make junk. Jesus never makes mistakes. And he has never given up on anything that he has made. He will chase you like a lover right through heaven's gates yeah, and it could have been your eyes but I suspect it was your kiss sugar I'll never be normal oh, I will never be normal I will never be normal oh after You're making me think of something that we should, I'm going to make a note to, to talk about it in our, one of our sessions, the, the psychedelic kind of revolution redux that we are going through Mm now. Um, and, and depending on who you listen to, there's a lot of pretty heavy rhetoric, uh, you know, so his thing about there are drugs that will make you see God. I mean, that's. That's since the 60s, that language has kind of been the same, right? Since Timothy Leary and and that initial kind of push. Some people will tell you that those trips are a way that they are actually facing reality. I think the concern Mm -hmm. with drugs is always that people are going to be distracting themselves from reality. And in the context of, you know, existentialism, it's like you don't want to be doing that. You you want to be facing the truth and reality as head on as you can. And that's real courage. So that is, but perhaps like because people have like therapeutic breakthroughs with these drugs. Right. And they and in some sense, they yeah. it allows them to see more clearly something that they do understand to be true, but that is hard for them to realize. So the, it's it's a it's a complex picture here. Right? And mm-hmm. I don't know. It There's just kind of like a, a, I have a lot of questions about that. I have therapeutic questions. I have sort of theological questions about it. But that's a that's a very now question that does have some interesting intersections with what we're talking about. And obviously the the song is talking about himself. So when you're talking about courage, so much of it is the decision to place your foot somewhere and step. Uh, and the first verse talks about the way people's relationships, even with their family of origin, have harmed them and and things like this, or friends that have left you out. Uh, and then you get all these chemical solutions of sorts 
that it's running that trying to fix problems, but it was someone knowing him in his brokenness and kissing him where he was no longer normal, right? Like and in the normal part, leaving behind normal is what happens with courage in the song. And in the next next verse, it, he's like, well, everyone's a junkie in the sense that, no, like if you're honest about the way, the big threat of non-being, if you re- understand your finitude, the existential challenge, everyone comes up with a way mm. of dosing themselves, of avoiding themselves. And the verse that was right before that last one, he says, well, you've gone and up the ante and you can see through it. He slowly switches to talking to God instead of talking to his lover. You've gone and up the ante in this game that we all play got to wake up and believe that love's a better way, right? You have to, it involves a deep decision because it's not obvious and that people could really be healed and that some of them you could even trust, but first you got to take a risk and tell them where it hurts. And when I think of courage and what that experience, you know, and picking the song for me so much of that growing up in a home that I really actually I, I valued a faith that was not really traumatic or anything, but it took a long time for me to get to a point of really trusting someone with the parts of me I don't like and the bones that are in my closet and stuff. And it actually took years of marriage for me to ever voice them and to share them. Like I remember when there was a transition uh, that I became much more confident that I could be known completely and loved completely by God because Alicia didn't run when I said it all and I shared it all and I became vulnerable and I didn't when it was reciprocal and that a kiss from someone that knows you completely is the, is the line he says that could break the curse. Right. And you think of the the curse here is, uh, is the power of sin, law and death. And so that that experience is something that for me was like, Oh, I can risk it. That courage also showed up the first time I held each of my children. And I go, a universe has to make sense. Like the world needs to make sense to me in a way that a, this deep love for this bundle of going to die if I don't care for it flesh, you know, at the heart of the Christian faith uh, is that ultimate reality is a beautifully captured using intimate parental language. And so that, like when it goes to the courage of faith, they're like to be honest about our brokenness, the way we each find our poison, right. To distract us, all these kinds of things at the end is like, I have a battered faith, but remember God doesn't make junk and he doesn't give up on things. Uh, said Jesus doesn't make mistakes, never given up on anything he's made. Cause Jesus will chase you like a lover right through heaven's gates. So like the, that kiss, those moments of deep intimacy, when I don't know the any parts of my dark side, I can't manage to share with that one person who's actually chosen me daily. Like that sliding into the courage to trust that at the heartbeat of existence is one who wants to know us in our brokenness, chose finitude and embraced a cross. And that's the one who's going to chase you. Not like a fear monger, not like a tyrant but like a lover and where are you getting chased? Not by the hounds of hell, but into heaven's gates, the embrace uh, of the divine. And now do I know or like, yeah, there are many of other explanations for those experiences for it, all of it. But for me as a Christian, like I know I could be really wrong. I also know like I will have a beautiful life 
whether this courage is in a fable or yeah. a deep structure of reality. And I think a life where the self-giving love of God expressed in the Christ, I seek to have it expressed in me, is one worth living. And I think that moment of breakthrough in the song comes when the person you've chosen to attempt to love, like God loves us in the covenant of marriage, like me, Alicia and I's relationship, I've learned a kind of love that gives me courage was potentially, you know, that potential in that space that made me more confident that living as if the source of all is chasing us mm-hmm. down like a lover. That That's why it's that, you know, that's why that song is the, uh, the one that's there. Plus, I, I thought you would like the line about their drugs that make us harder still. <laughs> I, I, I did enjoy that. I did enjoy that line. I think that you're getting at kind of the core question here for me, or maybe not question, but the core fork in the road. And it's, and the real fork in the road is what happens after I die. I actually don't get to see which path the the road takes. That all happens, or or maybe I will, but I don't know now what it's going to be. And I hope Mm -hmm. that I will get to experience it. But the path up until death is, is roughly the same for me. I, like you, have concluded that a life of faith is the way to go. And it's the way to go sort of whether or not it's a beautiful myth. It is a resonant story that humans have created from our need for making meaning, whether it is merely that. I mean, it it is that because we are constantly remaking religious meaning as we go. We are making meaning constantly, just all the time. That's just what humans do. The question mm-hmm. is whether that correlates with or, you know, maps onto some greater truth that is at the core of the universe being created in the first place and us evolving to have these meaning making and creative capacities, whether that is purely chance like Yalom thinks or whether that is the divine's plan like Kierkegaard thinks. And either way, though, I'm going to roughly take that road because it's a kind of an inverted Pascal's wager or like a super low stakes Pascal's mm-hmm. wager. I don't think anybody's going to hell. That's not what the wager is about. And the the type of faith that Christian existentialists are describing, that Kierkegaard is describing, can never be arrived at through some rational wager to keep oneself out of hell, which is maybe a reductive version of Pascal's wager, but ultimately how I've understood it. Mm-hmm. My Pascal's wager is just like, well, I can live as if that beautiful myth is true. And what I will get in the meantime is hopefully a loving family. You know, I can follow these treads, essentially, these like marks in the road to human flourishing. I will make some tweaks. I live in the 21st century and not when Luther was living. And, you know, like there will be some changes and that's my interest in science and utilizing the best research to understand the world better and better. But the broad strokes are Christian broad strokes. And if it turns out that it's not a true myth in the sort of metaphysical sense, and when I die, that's all it, well, then it still will have been a good way to live. And it provides me with sufficient meaning and structure to live that life. 
where it gets existential and interesting is the fact that I'm aware that that might all be bullshit and yet still choosing it over Mm -hmm. and over again. And that's where Kierkegaard uh, is valuable to me, you know, and and his idea of us being essentially ship captains in the middle of a storm. That is what a human being's predicament is. You can't pause the storm Take all your measurements. You have to choose while the storm is raging on. That is the human condition. And yeah, so I, I think that's that's kind of my ultimate orientation to these questions and to the courage. I'm excited to kind of hear more from you and and ultimately from Paul Tillich on like ways that I might think about that daily, uh, you know, using my freedom, using my will. Uh, to daily make meaning from a from a values centered place in this bigger cosmic story that affects the world whether or not it is metaphysically accurate and you know that's where other forms of religion that pretend that there is not a fundamental uncertainty at the heart of all of that fall short mm-hmm. for me and i think most listeners of both of our podcasts we don't want the pat answers and we don't want the oversimplification. We're here for the messy, gory truth of it. And what Tillich and others want to say, Kierkegaard, you know, et cetera, is real, real human life comes from choosing while acknowledging the uncertainty. That one, I don't always have faith in, but at any rate, I don't have a choice. I don't have a choice, but to acknowledge these existential realities. I see them as part of the deal. And I then have to make a choice yeah. given that that's a part of the deal. And man, I, I, words can almost not express how excited I am to, to spend, you know, basically what eight to 10, eight to 12 hours, uh, with you and those who attend the class. And, you know, I know, I know what the readings are going to be, but I don't know where it's going to go each session. And yeah. especially when we get listeners, involved in the discussion. So I'm pumped, man. I'm stoked. This is about, that's about as good of an advertisement as I can give for anything. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. And, uh, what to figure out how to do a, a collab playlist with the class members. Yeah. Maybe that can be like, maybe that can be kind of like a party at the end of the final session. We, we bring the playlist motif back in. Yeah. Cause if we're in the Facebook group and stuff, maybe people, or maybe I can make a one of those things we can add to the playlist, like people can add to the playlist on Spotify and everyone goes and puts a song or something. I don't know. Yeah. Cool. Something like that. But yeah, this has been fun, Dan. I'm so stoked. Mm-hmm.